The Patriots dynasty is dead. 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 In the deepest recesses of your mind, even the hardcore Patriot fan knows it's over. I grew up in northern Maine, sitting in the living room with my grandfather and my father, watching Patriots games, watching them lose more than they won. And I know it's over. So I take no joy in being the first to say that it's over. But I am a reasonable person of sound mind and body who tries to consume and analyze football from a rational perspective. And a rational person, a rational fan like myself, knows it's over. Like, it is over. There are 32 teams in the NFL. And I'm not sure I'll see the Patriots back in the Super Bowl at any point in my lifetime. Because once a dynasty ends... You never know when you will see if you will see another Super Bowl appearance. You just don't know. I don't take these Super Bowls for granted. It's difficult as a Patriots fan because we've been conditioned to expect Super Bowl appearances. But I do not take them for granted. That's part of the rational thought process. 32 teams. Some of them have never been to the Super Bowl, like the Jacksonville Jaguars. Some of them have never won a Super Bowl, like the Minnesota Vikings and the LA Chargers. We witnessed the end on Sunday, and it was one of the most bittersweet moments in my life. Because I have an affinity for the Patriots. I respect that franchise for its excellence. And I still harbor a nostalgic adoration for the team, for the logo, for the jersey, for everything Patriots. And even though Tom Brady has become a complete weirdo, dressing in a full-length peacoat and Andy Warhol sunglasses inside as he walked the tunnel to the locker room, producing bizarre documentaries where he's calling his son back over to a table in which he's being massaged for a lingering mouth kiss that sent a shiver down my spine. And yet I still adore Tom Brady. Tom Brady has excelled in the most pressurized, high-stakes circumstances in the history of professional sports. And those performances command your respect at the very least. I not only respect him, I adore him. Because those throws and those victories are seared into my conscience. They're part of who I am. They're part of my history on this planet. I was one of the many waving the Patriots flag. And in the case of the Malcolm Butler interception against the Seahawks, on my knees, tears streaming down as that interception hit me like this virtuous arrow through the heart. It just filled me with this warm energy that shook my body, rendered me unable to stand. That's sports at its finest, and that's the Patriots performing at the greatest heights. I love football because we get to watch these feats of athletic brilliance performed amid a swirl of violence. Sublime athletic artistry unlike you'll find anywhere else on earth. It's one of the reasons why I'm surprised that many other countries have not adopted American football as their national pastime as we have. Because the sport is just so compelling. And that's what we were treated to with the Super Bowl. That was the greatest game I've ever seen. I believe it was a better game than the Super Bowl a year prior when the Patriots came back to beat the Falcons. Down 28-3. Why? Because it was great football all throughout. Look at the total yards. Look at the total points. Look at the total punts. So you have record-breaking yardage, record-breaking points scored, and one punt. That's how you know it was a great game. 
and even though sports has never shocked me with positive energy the way the Malcolm Butler interception shocked me, and even though I've never experienced the suspense-filled jubilation that I experienced last year when the Patriots beat the Falcons, this year was even better because it was just back and forth and back and forth. And I can step back with a clear mind and a clear heart that that was the best football game ever played. And many agree. I'm looking at Twitter, and a lot of people agree with that. Why? Because offenses operating at the highest level is more aesthetically pleasing and more emotionally stimulating than defenses operating at the highest level. Offensive artistry is a pleasure to watch. And when both teams are exhibiting offensive artistry, you get the most compelling game in the history of football. And it also illuminates the ridiculousness of this false choice that we're often presented by those who seek to wind back the NFL's player safety movement. You need to let defenders do their job. You need to let defenders play the game. The NFL's going soft. It's flag football out there. They're no longer letting defenders use the crown of their helmet as a weapon to separate receivers from the football. The abolishment of the spear tactic is a constant lament by the hardcore football fan. And the Super Bowl nullified their position once and for all. It illuminated the false choice that the NFL traditionalists are constantly presenting. Are you interested in authentic football or player safety? You can't have it both ways. Well, yes, you can. What we saw on Sunday is absolutely, yes, you can have both player safety and exceptionally entertaining football. Those can coexist. Enough with this false choice. Defending these archaic defensive techniques that cause rampant brain trauma across the league. Enough. If anything, it should continue to be reduced. The Super Bowl showed that we're all better off. Fans, coaches, players, owners, everyone is better off. If you reduce the violent collisions, particularly in the secondary, on an NFL football field. You can force a defender to get in front of the receiver and knock the ball away to create an incompletion. Otherwise, you give the receiver an opportunity to catch the ball without being speared by a hardened dome at 30 miles an hour. How about that? That opens up the game for the artists and enables the artistry. And we're traded to a 41-33 game that no one could pull themselves away from to even go to the bathroom or get something to eat or refill their drink. I was transfixed on the television screen and I had no interest in pulling away my gaze. And it was bittersweet because while I felt the game was slipping away from the Patriots at various points in the game, I also saw how the Philadelphia Eagles were executing on the football field. But more importantly and more impactful to me personally, the way they were calling plays. It was surreal watching Doug Peterson go for it on fourth and short multiple times while everyone around me, Patriots fans, questioned the decision and were laughing, giggling to themselves. Oh, what a fool Doug Peterson is. And I was sullen, sinking into the chair, just mumbling to myself, no, 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 you idiots. This is the exact right move. Doug Peterson knows what he's doing better than any other coach the Patriots have ever faced in a Super Bowl. We are fucked. Because how many times have you watched Aaron Rodgers stopped on the one-yard line, fourth and goal, 
Mike McCarthy pulls the offense off the field to kick a field goal on fourth and goal at the one. That is NFL McCarthyism. That's my waking nightmare. And to see the Philadelphia Eagles just willingly go for it on fourth and short, even in their own territory, just filled my heart with this warmth that things are changing because we've been experiencing the dark ages of NFL analytics since the day Sashi Brown was fired. This is a new day. The light is back shining on the NFL analytics movement because of the Philadelphia Eagles and specifically Doug Peterson's play calling in the Super Bowl. So during the game, I want the Patriots to succeed. I want them to score. I want them to stop the Eagles. But in the back of my mind, this program keeps running. Wow, 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 wow. Eagles are good. Their players are good and their coaches are good. They're just good. I respect the hell out of this team. So it was conflicting watching a Philadelphia Eagles team beat the New England Patriots with exceptionally talented players and analytics. The Eagles were more talented and they were smarter. That's how they won. And New England has been a leader in smart football for years. Bill Belichick dismisses analytics because he knows it's a competitive advantage for his franchise. He knows that many organizations grossly underutilize stats and metrics. And the last thing Bill Belichick wants to do is to let the public know, let his fellow coaches know, his competitors know about this advantage that the Patriots have. The Patriots went as far as creating a separate organization in Foxborough focused on analytics. It's called the Kraft Group. So the Patriots have been pioneers in sports analytics, and they've been doing it the right way, building it brick by brick because they believe in the philosophy that an analytical approach gives you an edge. By figuring out the probabilities that define possibilities, you can optimize your player personnel and your in-game decision-making. See, in this way, the Eagles and the Patriots have been superior to the Cleveland Browns all along in the analytics department. The Cleveland Browns went out and made a splash higher in Sashi Brown and then later Paul De Podesta. But the leaders at the top, the owner in particular, Jimmy Haslam, did not believe in the underpinnings of analytics and the advantages that it offers to NFL teams. Jimmy Haslam never understood those advantages, and he never believed in the core tenets of analytically driven decision-making at the NFL level. The Cleveland Browns were analytics carpetbaggers. Eagles and the Patriots are the real deal. And it should be no surprise that the Patriots and the Eagles are the two teams favored to win the Super Bowl next season. But I disagree with that. I think the Eagles should be clear-cut favorites to win the Super Bowl, not the Patriots. Oh, no. Well, why? Because the Eagles beat the Patriots this year without their Pro Bowl tackle and without their Pro Bowl quarterback. They lost two cornerstone pieces of their offense and still beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl. That's like a riddle, but not really. They beat the Patriots because they're better across the board. Their players are a lot more talented and their coaches are better. Better than Bill Belichick? Yeah, yeah. Eagles coaches are definitely better than Bill Belichick, and it was on display in the Super Bowl. So the number one reason why the New England Patriots dynasty is dead is because they don't stand a chance of defeating the Philadelphia Eagles in the foreseeable future. You add Carson Wentz to that Eagles team, Patriots have no chance. Patriots lose that game 10 times out of 10. But in the Super Bowl, the Patriots received a great gift. No Carson Wentz. Instead, they merely had to face Nick Foles. Nick Foles, who played great. He stayed on fire. That was the argument with J.J. Zacharyson. It's unlikely that Nick Foles can stay hot 
for two straight games. The streaky quarterbacks rarely can stay hot for two full games. Nick Foles did it. But in the long run, you want Carson Wentz. And I believe the Eagles will make the smart, rational move and trade Nick Foles at peak value this offseason. They will sell high on Nick Foles. And after trading Alex Smith, the Eagles trading Nick Foles will be the most obvious transaction of the NFL offseason. But without Carson Wentz, the Eagles were vulnerable. The Patriots had their chance to get Tom Brady his sixth Super Bowl championship and tie Michael Jordan. It was on the table. They had it. They had it. They had it. And the Patriots blew it. How did they blow it? Foolish pride. The Patriots just had to do one thing differently and they would have won that game. Play Malcolm Butler. Just play Malcolm Butler. That's it. Malcolm Butler posted a .97 target separation last season. He was one of only a handful of corners in the NFL to have a target separation below one. It was Patrick Peterson, Malcolm Mitchell, A.J. Boye, and a couple other corners that were that smothering. Because on playerprofiler.com, we measure the distance between the corner and the receiver when the target arrives. Very few corners have a target separation under one. Malcolm Butler was one of those. He also had 11 pass breakups. That was top 25 in the NFL and a 55.7% catch rate allowed. That was 30th in the NFL. A 55.7 catch rate allowed is very low. This season, he happened to give up an inordinate number of touchdowns, which inflated his fantasy points allowed per snap, per target, and per game. But you look at the coverage rating, you look at the target separation, the advanced metrics show that Malcolm Butler was a quality corner last season. And that's exactly what the Patriots needed against Alshon Jeffrey and Nelson Aguilar and Torrey Smith. A quality corner. You can't go out there with just Stephon Gilmore and Eric Rowe. You just can't. You cannot do it. You can't. And I kept waiting for Malcolm Butler to get in the game. Just waiting, waiting, waiting. This waiting game, waiting for Malcolm Butler was part of the conflict that engulfed me throughout the entire game because it was thrilling and yet frustrating knowing that if they had just played Malcolm Butler from the beginning, some of those receptions, especially those by Alshon Jeffrey, may have fallen incomplete. And we hear after the game, oh, the Malcolm Butler benching? Oh, that was for football reasons. Yeah, all those football reasons. Sure, sure, yeah, football reasons. You have NFL beat reporters taking that answer at face value. I'm looking at the numbers right now. All cornerback pages are free and open to the public on playerprofiler.com now. I'm looking at the Malcolm Butler page without a login. It's obvious he's a player that needs to be on the field. The Patriots had very few quality defenders on the field because their defense was one of the worst defenses in the NFL. If you have a player who's above average, he damn well needs to be on that field because the Patriots had very few of them. And for them to bench one of the few quality players was unforgivable. I am still upset about this. I thought, okay, I won't do a show on Monday. I need to cool off. I'm too hot. I'm just too hot. I'm too hot. But no, still too hot. Enraged. Why? He dressed. Malcolm Butler dressed. He was wearing a uniform. He had a helmet on. He wasn't injured. He was ready to play. He wanted to play, capable of helping the team, and they didn't play him. There's no excuse. Reports came out that Malcolm Butler was a day late 
Maybe he had a personal problem he had to deal with. Maybe he, had, maybe he just missed the plane. We know the Patriots have a zero-tolerance policy, unless it's a Tom Brady-level star player, for being late. We saw what happened to Jonas Gray. His alarm clock didn't go off, and he went from 200 yards and four touchdowns against the Colts to working on his stand-up comedy routine. That's what happens to Patriots players who miss scheduled appointments. In this case, possibly a plane's departure. So that's a big deal. But did he break a law? Was he in jail? No. Did he have a bipolar break with reality and find himself in a Tijuana brothel like Oakland Raiders offensive lineman Barrett Robbins? No. So outside of having a psychotic break or being thrown in jail, because this has happened before. Eugene Robinson was arrested the night before the Super Bowl and charged with soliciting a prostitute in Miami. So this wouldn't be the first time this happened. But that's not what happened! So whether he was late, whether he cursed at Bill Belichick, whatever he did, whatever he did, it doesn't matter! He's there, he's active, he's healthy, he needs to be playing. And whatever reason you want to make up, it doesn't matter. We know why Malcolm Butler wasn't playing. And whatever reason Bill Belichick wants to feed to his media lapdogs doesn't matter. We see through it to the truth. Foolish pride. Foolish pride. Lost that Super Bowl. Betrayed Tom Brady. Robbed him of an opportunity to become the indisputed greatest athlete of all time. He needed that sixth championship to tie Michael Jordan. The ultimate argument ender. And it was ripped away from him by Bill Belichick's hubris. Because it's one thing to cut Jonas Gray, a replacement level player. Malcolm Butler, not a replacement level player. In fact, it could be argued Malcolm Butler was the keystone of their pass defense this past season. And if you're playing a team with an efficient passing game, you need Malcolm Butler's services all the more. He needs to be on the field. It's the Super Bowl. I just can't believe that Bill Belichick would cut off his nose to spite his face in the Super Bowl. But those types of decisions exemplify how dynasties fall. You become so arrogant and so self-involved, obsessed with your own ethos, mantras, that you end up perpetrating a crime against all the New England players with the ultimate self-serving demonstration of naked power. The power to play Malcolm Butler one snap in the biggest moment cost him and all of his teammates a championship and him millions of dollars in free agency, undoubtedly. But this is how dynasties fall. Naked abuses of power. Going all the way back to the Ming Dynasty and the British Empire. Dynasties end with hubris. But you could argue that even with Malcolm Butler, the New England Patriots did not have the defensive resources to force the Philadelphia Eagles to punt at all. We don't know. It's an unfalsifiable hypothetical that if Malcolm Butler had played, the New England Patriots would have won. But even when Malcolm Butler played during the regular season, it was clear the New England Patriots have one of the worst defenses in the league. So beyond foolish pride, an ineffective defense was one of the other key reasons that they did not win the Super Bowl on Sunday. The Patriots were number 31 in defense DVOA and number 22 in opponent-weighted defense DVOA. So however you want to measure it, they were outside the top 20 in defense last season. It would have been a rare feat for the Patriots to win the Super Bowl with a defense outside the top 20 in DVOA. And you look at that roster, 
It is devoid of talent. And just looking at the personnel, that would be the reason why the Patriots are unlikely to return to the Super Bowl in the near term. The defense needs a complete rebuild. The Patriots are in desperate need of a two to three year rebuilding plan. You can't simply rebuild the defensive line in a secondary in a season, not with a salary cap. Their linebackers are unathletic. Their defensive line is a collection of nobodies, with the exception of one first round pick, defensive tackle, Malcolm Brown. Dante Hightower is a first round pick. He was injured and he's now in the back half of his career. So what do the Patriots have to build around on defense? Very little. In fact, knowing that the Patriots had one of the NFL's worst defenses made the total points scored over one of the no-brainer locks of all time on Sunday. The other one was provided by Rich Rebar at Lord Reeves on Twitter, the Corey Clement passing yards over. He gave that to you before the game started. Lord Reeves wins again. But if you weren't dedicated enough to the props to go deep to the Corey Clement receiving yards over, Just take the overall over. Just take the over, people. You have two offenses that can't be stopped, and at least one defense that can't stop anybody. Ah! Take the over. A team with a defense DVOA that bad rarely makes it to the Super Bowl. The Patriots were fortunate to even be there. Why? The AFC was exceptionally weak this season. There was not one team that was good on both sides of the ball. Not even the Patriots. The Patriots were a flawed team. Their defense was their fatal flaw. And we saw it in the Super Bowl when the Patriots gave up uh, 41 points to the Eagles. But the Patriots won't be so fortunate next season. What happens when the Steelers upgrade their defense or the Jaguars sign Kirk Cousins or the LA Chargers continue to add pieces to both the offense and the defense? That team is also very close. You look up and down the roster, it's an easy argument to make. The LA Chargers are a more talented team than the New England Patriots. And the New England Patriots just lost their defensive coordinator, Matt Patricia. Not that he's any good anyway. The most overrated hire of this offseason was the Lions hiring Matt Patricia to be their head coach. I mean, he's as overrated as Josh McDaniels is underrated. I mean, since when is it a good idea to hire a defensive coordinator, number one, because you get more value hiring an innovative offensive coordinator than you do a quote-unquote innovative defensive coordinator? But if you are going to hire a defensive coordinator, you better be sure that he has a scheme that can make you better. What do we know about Matt Patricia? The New England Patriots had a 10.9 defense DVOA last season, number 31 in the NFL. How the hell did the Lions think it was a good idea to hire a defensive coordinator who just came off a season in which his defense was one of the worst in the league? Like, how? How? How is that possible? Who's making these hires and what are they based on? They're based on nothing. And he doesn't even have the gravitas. He looks like an oversized Lord of the Rings dwarf. So it's not the performance. It's not the eye test. What is it? What was the fascination with Matt Patricia? I don't know. I know the fascination with Josh McDaniels. The Patriots had the number one offense DVOA. Better than the Saints. Better than the Steelers. Better than the Chiefs. The Patriots. They didn't have the most talented offense. Didn't have the best offensive line. Had a running back by committee. No one believes that Brandon Cooks, Chris Hogan, and Danny Amendola are one of the NFL's top receiving cores. They're just not. They've got Brady and Gronk and some other quality pieces, but not anywhere close to the Pittsburgh Steelers' talent profile. So if you think Todd Haley is a good offensive coordinator, you must think Josh McDaniels is a fucking genius. 
So that was a good hire by the Colts. The Lions hiring Patricia, bad. I mean, think about it. You have Bill Belichick, right, and Matt Patricia combining to stop exactly nobody. The Patriots couldn't stop anyone in the playoffs other than an overwhelmed Titans team with a negative point differential and one quarter of Blake Bortles. And they certainly weren't stopping anyone during the regular season. This is what I don't understand about the coach worshipers. We're told to like Bill Belichick because he's a defensive genius and then his teams are bad at defense. Matt Patricia is hired because he was mentored by defensive genius, but his defenses actually didn't perform well. I mean, someone explain it. The Pats needed a stop in the Super Bowl. They had the head coach who was supposed to help get stops when he has Lawrence Taylor. And the guy who just got hired by the Lions because he's supposed to get stops. And what can't they do? Get stops. I mean, and it didn't help that Bill Belichick was throttling the talent profile of the Patriots secondary with this flippant self-sabotage benching Malcolm Butler, which can only be derived from bad self-scouting and or poor opponent scouting. Because if Malcolm Butler was benched for football reasons, if that was actually what happened, which is the only way you could excuse the behavior, if there was actually a well-conceived game plan to stop the Eagles that featured Eric Rowe, because maybe Eric Rowe is a former Eagle and he understands the tendencies of Eagles receivers and their quarterback, the problem is Alshon Jeffrey and Nick Foles were not on the Eagles last year. So this argument that Eric Rowe understood the tendencies of the Eagles better than Malcolm Butler is a blatant falsehood. So Bill Belichick either demonstrated unadulterated, arrogant incompetence by benching Malcolm Butler out of spite, or he exhibited poor self-scouting, thinking Eric Rowe was better than he is, or he exhibited poor opponent scouting by underestimating Eagles receivers. Any one of those three is an indictment of Bill Belichick. And no one believes that Bill Belichick is bad at self-scouting or bad at opponent scouting. No one believes that. I don't believe that. And there's not a human being on planet Earth that believes that. And that leaves one reason and one reason alone for the Malcolm Butler benching. Arrogant self-sabotage. And that is the worst kind of incompetence. Because you can learn to better evaluate your players and you can learn to better evaluate your opponents. You cannot learn humility, and that has been forever lost on Bill Belichick into the sands of time. And that is why the benching of Malcolm Butler represents Bill Belichick jumping the shark. I mean, we know that it takes the best throws and the best catches by an opponent to beat the New England Patriots. We've seen that with the most improbable catch of all time by David Tyree. We've seen the best throw in the history of football, Manning hitting Mario Manningham in the biggest moment going down the sideline. And we saw Nick Foles throw a perfect ball to Alshon Jeffrey in the back of the end zone. One of the great completions in the history of the NFL playoffs. And if it were Malcolm Butler on Jeffrey and not Eric Rowe, that pass may have been deflected and complete. And that decision cost Tom Brady Michael Jordan. It cost him immortality. If I'm Tom Brady, I am furious. I am beside myself with anger. And now you hear reports coming out of the New England Patriots locker room that many players were enraged by the decision to bench Malcolm Butler and they feel like it cost the team the game. Because of course it did! 
course it did. But does this mean I think Bill Belichick's a bad coach? Of course not. Bill Belichick is absolutely an above average coach. You want Bill Belichick running your franchise. Oh yes. As a Patriots fan, I do not want Bill Belichick to retire or to take a job with any other franchise. No, please don't do that. Please stay, Bill. But what we saw happen in the Super Bowl speaks to a larger issue where so many want the coach to be the reason for the performance. This belief that the coach decides the outcome of these games. And that is rarely true. The fact that Bill Belichick intervened and prevented his team from winning is noteworthy because it's so rare. Coaches cannot win games, but they can lose them. They can lose them by not playing their best players, like we saw with the Dallas Cowboys not playing Tony Romo in the playoffs against the Green Bay Packers last season. Jason Garrett's inability to bench Dak Prescott and start Tony Romo cost the team the game. Bill Belichick's absurd stubbornness cost his team the game. But even though I marveled at... Doug Peterson's decisions to go for it on fourth and short, and that became the silver lining for me personally in what was otherwise an emotionally devastating loss. I know Doug Peterson is only in that position to say, hey, go for it here, because he had the best offensive line and one of the best defensive lines in football. We talked about this with Evan Silva, the way to build a winning franchise in the National Football League is to start as close to the football as possible and work your way out. Win at the point of attack first with a quality offensive line and defensive line. And then you add the auxiliary pieces and the skill positions after the fact. After you have the foundation in place. The great line play. And who was responsible for sourcing that talent? Howie Roseman, not Doug Peterson. Player personnel decisions matter more than coaching decisions. It's actually why I think the Patriots will be fine without Belichick. If they lose Belichick or Belichick retires in a couple years, which he will because he's in his late 60s and he's been getting up at 5 a.m. for decades, the Patriots will be fine because their player personnel department is so strong and talent always trumps coaching. When you look at the decisions the Patriots have made, it's hard to find a mistake. Stockpiling that roster with great value at almost every position. Look at the free agent signings. Chris Hogan at value. Rex Burkhead at value. And where would the Patriots have been on Sunday without Stephon Gilmore? The recent free agent signing. Great draft picks. They haven't had many draft picks because they lost picks due to deflate gate. They traded a pick for Brandon Cooks. That was another win. Who they draft last year? Derek Rivers, who I believe was the best value pick in the entire draft. Derek Rivers would have been a difference maker on Sunday. Derek Rivers was a better pass rusher at Youngstown State than any of the pass rushers on the Patriots roster. They could have used him. That was a third round pick. But even though the Patriots have a quality coaching staff and one of the best player personnel departments in the league, they're still far. They're still far behind the Eagles at this point in both player ability and coaching. I celebrated when Bill Belichick went for it on fourth and two inside his own 40-yard line against the Colts over eight years ago. It was a screen pass to Kevin Falk, and it failed. And it set analytics-based play calling back five years because he came out publicly and admitted to reporters that he regretted the decision. And that did huge damage to the movement toward coaches leveraging win probability more frequently in their play calling. But what Bill Belichick could not accomplish eight years ago, Doug Peterson did accomplish with two successful play calls on fourth and short in situations in which other coaches 
less courageous coaches would have kicked. But he made the right move. His play calling on fourth down was better than Belichick's because Belichick had an opportunity to be aggressive in the red zone on fourth down and two consecutive drives, he chose to kick field goals instead of go for it. And they came away with three total points after that field goal hit the upright. You get in the red zone twice, come away with three points. That is an abject failure. That's why you do not kick on fourth and short anywhere on the football field, much less in the red zone. But based on probability theory, it doesn't make sense to punt on fourth and short in all but the most extreme circumstances. You're backed up inside your own 20, for example. But even then, there's a case to be made to go for it. The NFL punter should not exist. NFL roster spots are too valuable to hold both a place kicker and a punter. Punts should be so rare that NFL coaches should be asking their place kickers to also learn to punt because the place kicking profession is one of the easiest professions in all of sports. I've been an equipment manager at the college level. I've seen how hard the kickers work during practice. I used to hang out with the kickers during practice. Just mess around. You can only practice place kicking so much in a given day. And inevitably, the place kickers would sometimes practice their punting. The advantage you get from having a full-time punter over the punts that a place kicker would execute do not necessitate a roster spot. Fuck that. Because punts should be rare. You should almost never punt in your own territory. And when you're in the opponent's territory, you should only punt on fourth and long. That's the best rule of thumb. There are some exceptions when you're backed up deep inside your own territory, but you almost never punt on anything shorter than fourth and five. And slowly but surely, Doug Peterson is internalizing this, and it's exciting. This was part of the conflict that I felt watching the Super Bowl. It was demoralizing see another team play better than my favorite team, but on the other end of the spectrum, it was uplifting seeing a team like the Philadelphia Eagles fully understand and embrace probability theory in play calling. It was amazing. Except for that fourth and short play call, the Trey Burton pass to Nick Foles. I mean, that was a bad play call. I mean, bad. You have one of the best offensive lines in football, the most efficient running game. You don't call a throw to the quarterback in that situation. I mean, it worked, but the hindsight bias criticism of that play had it not worked. Just ask Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll what kind of flamethrower of criticism they would have received opting to throw in an obvious running situation and not simply opting to throw, opting to call a trick play pass to the quarterback. Just idiotic. But it worked, hey! You have to respect the courage of Doug Peterson to embrace probability theory and be creative. He did it better than Belichick. And overall, the Eagles as an organization are leveraging analytics better than any other team. They have one of the most overwhelming, talent-rich rosters, as well as an organization that leverages analytics on every level. So think about that. You have one of, if not the most talented roster, and then you supplement that roster with data-driven, quantitative decision-making. How can that team win? I don't know. That's why I think the Patriots dynasty is over because I don't see a way to beat that team. It wouldn't surprise me if the Eagles go out and win three consecutive Super Bowls. Who would be surprised by that? Think about all the places the Eagles are leveraging analytics to gain incremental advantages on their opponents. In player personnel, we know that Howie Roseman's leveraging analytics to decide which players to sign in free agency and draft. Just look at the Alshon Jeffrey signing. Look at the players 
that they're accumulating on defense. An emphasis on speed, especially at linebacker. Michael Kendricks, the quintessential explosive sideline-to-sideline linebacker. They're leveraging analytics and their strength and conditioning. That goes back to the Chip Kelly era. They wear heart monitors in practice. The Eagles measure more events and outcomes on the practice field and on game day than any other team. And they're constantly learning how to leverage that data to make better decisions. And it goes as far as the nutrition program. The Eagles essentially have a TB12 program, but for the entire franchise, not just for Tom and his friends, but for everyone to understand how to get the most out of their bodies. Because you get out what you put in. The Eagles understand this better than anyone. And that's all the stuff behind the scenes. What you saw in game day was how the Eagles are leveraging analytics for their in-game tactics and play calling. In this way, the Eagles are the most innovative franchise. Certainly more analytics focused than the Browns under Sashi Brown because of the comprehensive nature of their focus on data collection and data analysis. That it spans the entire franchise. It touches every aspect of the team. From ticket prices to player meals. But the public can't possibly appreciate that. What the public can't appreciate is a quote-unquote gutsy fourth down call. And I know those fourth down calls were driven by analytics. They were not this whimsical expression of boldness in the moment. It was the result of a long-term commitment to analytical decision-making. And we knew this going into the game that the Eagles had these advantages. There was an article written in the Las Vegas Review Journal by Michael Gelkin about a little-known assistant to Doug Peterson. Gelkin writes, From a Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum booth, coaching assistant Ryan Paganetti discerned whether statistics advocated the Eagles' attempt a fourth-down conversion late in the fourth quarter, down 28-24 to the Rams. Peterson heard the results, went through a third-down incompletion, and right away, Doug responded, let's stay on the field, I've got something. Arguably, no NFL offense had more fourth-down success in 2017 than the Eagles. Paganetti graduated from Dartmouth College and coached prep football at a private school in Massachusetts. And on that Sunday, and during the Super Bowl, He oversaw the Eagles' analytical operations. And on that fourth down call against the Rams, Wentz converted the first down with a strike to wide receiver Alshon Jeffrey. That was the last game Wentz played this season. And later, Ben Spiegel wrote about the Eagles' analytics organization in the New York Times. He wrote, The most illuminating moment of the Eagles' enchanted season was a week three play ridiculed in Philadelphia, but celebrated by a small group of people who recognize its significance almost immediately. What fueled the excitement among members of the Edge Sports crew was not the outcome of a play, a six-yard sack of Carson Wentz on fourth and eight that gifted the Giants good field position, but rather the call itself. Leading seven to nothing on the Giants' 43-yard line, a few minutes before halftime, the Eagles opted not to punt. By keeping Philadelphia's offense on the field in a situation almost always played safe in the risk-averse NFL, Coach Doug Peterson did not so much buck conventional wisdom, but roll his eyes at it. Ah, ooh, edgy Doug Peterson. An intern at Edge Sports responded to a flurry of text messages from his colleagues about the play, ran the numbers at home. The Eagles, by going for it, improved their probability of winning by 0.5%. 
And defending his decision at a news conference the next day, Peterson cited that exact statistic. I've never heard that language coming out of an NFL franchise, said the co-founder of Edge Analytics. Are you not impressed by this? This is the dawn of a new day, and I believe a new dynasty in Philadelphia. The smartest organization with the best data and young cornerstone players at key positions with forward-thinking coaches in their prime has been unleashed on the NFL. How is anyone, including the Patriots, going to beat this Eagles team? Well, they aren't.